Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and this is episode number 458. As part of our Smithsonian Associates Art of Living interview series, our guest today, Paul Glenshaw, has been here before. Paul Glenshaw will be presenting via Zoom at the Smithsonian Associates program Saturday, June 27th, 2020, and details will be available on our website about Zoom and his presentation. Paul Glenshaw is joining us today. He's a real audience favorite. I'm thrilled Paul's agreed to join us again to talk about the dawn of flight in Washington, D.C. It's hard to overstate the profound change that came over the world in the summer of 1908, when the Wright brothers demonstrated the airplane to the world for the first time. Other people had managed to struggle into the air in between the time of their first flight in 1903 and their public demonstrations in 1908, but nobody could do what the Wright brothers could do. And Wilbur was the first to start in France in August, of 1908, but in September of 1908, Orville Wright came here to DC to fly at Fort Myer. And what those flights did, uh, which pointed the way to the sale of their airplane to the US Army and the first military airplane, those flights that they made that summer changed everything. Because before people thought, well, the airplane can get off the ground, maybe, maybe can fly in a circle. They showed what flight was going to be, how it could an airplane could carry a passenger, how it could fly for a long time in the air, how it could be under the complete control of the pilot. That was the big bang. And it happened here. And uh, so to be in the presence of that place and realize that that profound change happened here is, is an incredible experience. It's really something that is inspiring and um, kind of takes your breath away. That was our guest today, Paul Glenshaw, speaking of the dawn of flight in Washington, D.C. So join me and Wilbur and Orville Wright scholar Paul Glenshaw for a virtual tour that visits locations across the area to discover the crucial role Washington played in the earliest days of powered flight. Drawing on a variety of visual sources, including contemporary and historic photos, Paul Glenshaw covers an itinerary that brings to life the people, places, and events that shaped an era of discovery. Think of the invention of the airplane and places like Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, or Dayton, Ohio come to mind. How about Washington, D.C.? You'd be surprised that the nation's capital is home to several significant sites connected to the beginnings of the airplane. Together, they tell a story of large and small moments that helped launch flight as we know it today. Fort Myer in Northern Virginia is where Orville Wright successfully demonstrated the first military aircraft and his brother Wilbur trained the first military officers to fly at College Park, Maryland, establishing the oldest continually operating airport in the world. The third secretary of the Smithsonian, Samuel Pierpont Langley's full-scale manned versions, had a disastrous crash off Haynes Point here in Washington, D.C., nine days before the Wright brothers succeeded. Harry Atwood landed one of the Wright brothers' planes on the south lawn of the White House in 1911, completing the first-ever flight from Boston to Washington, D.C. This is an amazing story. Please welcome to the Not Old Better Show via internet phone. Paul Glenshaw. 
Paul Glenshaw, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Paul. It's great to be back. It's great to be back with you, too. Let's start off with, uh, you know, uh, I, perhaps what are the most important? How are you doing? How's your family? Everybody good throughout the uh, kind of the lockdown and the, the COVID quarantine? Thank you for asking. That's very kind. Yes, we've been very, very fortunate. Um, so far, so good. Knock on wood, we're, we're all well and, uh, and very grateful for that. I'm grateful to hear that. And, and uh, my best to you and, and your family. You, you've always been such a popular guest here. We want you to hang in there with all of this stuff. It, it has been a challenge. I suppose one of the interesting things that's uh, on your plate here is your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation where you've had to kind of adapt a little bit on the fly, I'll say, tongue-in-cheek, <laughs> excuse the pun, to, to talk about uh, your upcoming um, Aviation in Washington, D.C. presentation, which will be via Zoom. So you're here you are adapting once again to, to COVID. But tell us a little bit about what you're going to talk about at your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. Yeah, well, it actually, you know what, it's, it's a little bit different than a presentation. It's actually a tour. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Virtual tour, right? Yes. We are going on tour yep. around around Washington, D.C. Um, without leaving our homes. And uh, this is actually an adaptation of a bus tour that I did for the Smithsonian Tours uh, a few years back. And so we thought it would be a good idea to, to learn how to do the uh, online version of this by taking something that already you know, we knew it was a good tour and had had a gr- has great stories behind it, and uh, it's wonderful because it's familiar and unknown at the same time. There's these uh, very important events that happened here in, in the D.C. area um, that have, you know, kind of faded with history a little bit, but they're in very familiar places. So it's it's got that nice balance of of the familiar and the and the novel, um, and so what we're doing is. Um, we are through Zoom uh, using Google Earth to visit these places and really doing essentially the same tour that we did on the bus, except we're able to exploit what we can do online a, a little bit differently. Uh, it, it's, there's nothing like being in the actual place, in standing on the ground where something significant happened and just taking in that moment and, and imagining yourself at that moment in history. Well, we can't do that right now, but we can um, do what the online experience with Google Earth, what that can do, um, and use it to our advantage. So we're going to go visit um, about a half dozen sites in the D.C. area, starting at the National Air and Space Museum. And thank you to Google Earth. They actually have a street view uh views of the museum inside the museum. So we can go see the Wright Flyer. That's where we're going to start. Arguably the most famous airplane in the world, the very first one, and start there and talk about, you know, this incredible artifact that's there and and the story behind it. But then we're going to build in context about what happened before the Wright brothers flew in 1903 by what was going on at the Smithsonian itself. So we leave the, uh, the Wright Flyer and we go to the Smithsonian Castle, which was a museum and a laboratory back in the late 1800s and early 20th century. And the, direct, the secretary of the Smithsonian, Samuel Langley, was himself investigating powered flight and was successful in the late 1890s flying these steam-powered models that are also in the Air and Space Museum, but down near Quantico. 
So again, beautiful thing about Google Earth, what would take us an hour plus to drive to go see where he flew them, we can jump in Google Earth in two seconds down to Quantico and see the place where these models flew and then jump back to the castle and talk about the work that was done to create a, not a model, but a full-size version of this aircraft and their attempts to fly it in 1903 when they were in this race with the Wright brothers to be first. So that's a, that's a really fun part of it because we can jump from the castle down to Quantico where they flew, down to Quantico where they tried to fly the full-size one and didn't make it, and then jump out to the Hazi Center out at Dulles, the Udvar Hazi Center, and see the, the machine that they tried to fly. And so it really is quite a rich experience because um, while we can't be there in person, we can hop from place to place and, in a way that we wouldn't be able to otherwise. So um, I think as an alternative to actually being there, it's, it's really gonna be a fun experience and something a little bit different. And then we'll go to other sites around Washington um, where a significant thing happened, like the Wright brothers demonstrating the first military airplane ever at Fort Myer. And the, then going to College Park, Maryland, where Wilbur Wright trained the first American military officers to fly. Um, and it's been a continually operating airport ever since. Um, the oldest in the world. And, uh, and then a few other sites, the White House, where airplanes landed on its lawn and next to it <laughs> in 1910 and 1911. Um, so there's, there's these wonderful moments that happened where the dawn of this incredible technology that, that changed everything was happening uh, in and around the city um, because of its you know, prominence as the nation's capital. I always love talking to you, Paul Glenshaw, because you are, you are so creative. We're going to get into your additional creative efforts in just a bit, but just the, the, just the prospect of being able to go to these sites, do it virtually, see this stuff in what would be almost a compressed kind of travel time frame, but just in some additional detail via Google Earth and some of the some of the other photos that I know that are going to accompany this is just brilliant. I, I personally am really excited about it. I've signed up already. <laughs> there are details on our website about where people can get additional signups to uh, to attend this because it is limited. There's going to be a limited number of people that are going to be able to attend. But I guess, tell us, Paul Glenshaw, what, you know, among all of those various DC-related aspects of, of aviation, what, what was most memorable in, in terms of the milestones of flights being recorded here locally? You know, there's um, – there, if, if, if I could, I'll, I'll, I'll reference two of them. And I'll, I'll talk about actually what, how uh, – another way we're actually able to exploit uh, the technology that's available through Google Earth and Zoom. Um, and that is, uh, you know, I, I mentioned the secretary of the Smithsonian, Samuel Langley, and his attempts to mm -hmm. fly. Well, the second attempt that he made with his full-size flying machine was right off the tip of Haynes Point. And so we're able to go to Haynes Point and see where in December 1903, just I think it was nine days before the Wright brothers successfully flew, he attempted to have his grand aerodrome, as he calls mm. it, flown. Mm. And so we're able to go to that spot and then bring in, uh, we have linked 
at every stop along the tour in Google Earth, um, additional media, archival photographs, uh, video, so that we can then see, we can be at this place where this thing happened and then see what actually happened, which was the aerodrome was launched off the top of a houseboat. It was a terrible time to do it, but they were out of money. The military, which had given them the money, was telling them they had to show something, and they decided to go for it on a windy, cold afternoon, late afternoon, ice in the river, and the aerodrome basically destroyed itself as it went down its launching track, and it kind of reared up in the air and then fell backwards into the ice and nearly killed the very brave and very brilliant uh, engineer who was on board, a guy named Charles Matthews Manley. And we see this photograph, it's, and it's terrifying to look at. And when you see it in the context of the place, you realize just the, the sort of incredible uh, risks that were taken and the kind of courage that was required to try and achieve this milestone. Um, and then we do the same thing over at uh, what's now called Joint Base Meyer-Henderson Hall, which was until recently called Fort Meyer. And uh, that's where the Wright brothers had one of their greatest triumphs, but also which was preceded by one of their greatest uh, difficulties, terrible uh, tragedies, really. Um, in 1908, they came to demonstrate uh, their fir the first time they flew in public in the United States was at Fort Meyer. And they were demonstrating the airplane for the Army. And after many successful flights, Orville Wright took up a passenger, Thomas Selfridge, and he crashed. There was a mechanical failure on the airplane, and he crashed. And his passenger was killed, and it was the first fatality in an airplane. And then they came back the next year, both Wright brothers, together. And motion pictures cameras were running um, almost the entire time they were there. And they came back with a brand new airplane and successfully demonstrated it. And so that's what we'll see. We'll see both these events um, take place at the place where they happen. Um, and actually, because of Google Earth, we've been able to pinpoint the exact spot where Orville Wright's airplane crashed. So it's, it's quite a, um, it's, it's quite a, a, a moving experience, be, uh, again, because, you know, the, the, the willingness to put their lives on the line um, to, you know, advance this technology and, and sort of make the dream of flight real um, was, was truly life and death. So it's, it's um, and it's not that it's terribly surprising to see this, but it's kind of profound. It, 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 you, you think, oh, well, they demonstrated the airplane at Fort Myer. Big deal. Or that's nice. But then you realize, you know, it was a lot more than that. And it was a profound change in how we operate as human beings. Yes. So powerful. And I, I think um, profound, too. I think, that, I think that is the word. Profound in the sense that, you know, many in our audiences are going to be very familiar with Kitty Hawk and, and the Wright brothers' work in Ohio. Certainly very few are going to be aware of what happened here in DC and 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 probably very few are going to understand the just the sheer drama involved and I think that's that will be very powerful you you actually have some film of this too and and are are you going to show some of the, yeah so will this be uh will be will be 
will we be able to view some of this too during the presentation? Oh, absolutely. During- that's 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 mm-hmm. part of the beauty of it. Uh, if mm-hmm. we were there in person, I don't know how I'd show you the film, but mm-hmm. uh, because we're online, we can we can go see the Wright brothers at Fort Myer at the place that we're visiting. Um, and uh, actually, we will take a little side detour down to Kitty Hawk. And you'll see a Wright flyer fly at Kitty Hawk. I, I happened to be there in 2003 as part of the Wright Experience team when, uh, for the 100th anniversary of the first flight, uh, an exact reproduction of the Wright Brothers' first airplane was um, flown there um, as part of the run-up to the big centennial. Um, and uh, it's really quite something to actually see an exact duplicate of the first airplane fly at the place where the first one flew. So we'll be able to see that. And it's all, thank you, uh, Google Earth. We can quickly click to uh, over to YouTube within Google Earth and we, so we can be standing at the spot where it happened and then see the airplane fly and, uh, and then quickly zoom back to the Smithsonian. <laughs> it's really cool. Really, really fantastic stuff. Yeah, and so Paul Glenshaw will be, um, this, this virtual tour via Zoom will be Saturday, June 27th. Uh, coming up here pretty quickly, we're going to have links to where you can get more information about Paul Glenshaw's tour, about uh, some of the details uh, around Zoom. It'll be from 10 a.m. to 11.30. I really encourage my audience to go now, check it out, get signed up. It will be limited in terms of number of participants. So this this will be one to uh, definitely take part in. And uh, and, and I, I personally am looking forward to this too. But Paul Glitch, I, I can't let you get away without talking about some of your other creative works. I, I, I made... Uh, mention of that just uh, early on, and uh, and and I, I always enjoy talking to you because of your your um, your just your creative breadth and and all that you are doing. <laughs> I know that um, with COVID, we have all just been on lockdown, unable to get out, see things. Smithsonian has been closed uh, for so much of this time. It's it's really unfortunate. But maybe if you'd give us a little bit of a sense as to some of the drawings that are on display at the Ripley Center in downtown Washington, D.C., along with some of the associated drawings that you've done at the National Museum of, of Health and Medicine, because I think these are really powerful, too. And, and maybe just kind of walk us through that virtually as well. Kind of continue the theme a bit. Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, well, I, I – as uh... – as a kid growing up here, um, I was very fortunate while I was an art student and learning how to draw. Um, I've always had a, a, an interest in drawing bones. Uh, they just one of those things that, you know, I've always done and I've been very interested in it. So I used to draw in the, um, the, the skeleton exhibit at the Natural History Museum. I still do. And, uh, well, I did until everything was shut down. And, um, I happened to visit about a year and a half ago the, the National Museum of Health and Medicine and saw the incredible um, specimens and presentations they have on uh, display there. And so I started to make some drawings there. And that led to my being able to work sort of behind the scenes and work with the curators directly and work um, directly from specimens that are not on, uh, us- on display usually. And uh, so the first that I worked on are, are these drawings that are uh, still up on the wall at the uh, Ripley Center as part of the Smithsonian uh, Staff Art Exhibition, which I'm very proud to be part of because there's so many outstanding artists in that exhibit. And it's, it's quite an honor to be, be included among them. And uh, the two drawings that I have of two specimens of severe scoliosis. So it's the... Uh, uh, everything from the, the pelvis, the spine, and the, and the rib cages of, of 
two individuals who had who had severe scoliosis with you know three or four 90 degree turns in their in their spinal columns and these are incredibly um intricate things to draw and really quite powerful to be in the presence of a specimen like this and realize you know this this was an actual person and um this was something they lived with and and how did they carry themselves who were they and you really uh develop something of a of a feeling for who this person might have been and in each case there's not a lot known about who they actually were um but it was it was in the course of drawing those and and the kind of drawing i do i work directly from the subject that i'm drawing you know i, I the specimen was laid out in front of me and over the course of several visits to the curatorial office where they had it for me i would spend you know two hours each time or an hour and a half each time working and being very very close to the to the specimen and then that led to looking at what else they had that might be of interest and i was just stunned to see uh, a very significant collection of remains of civil war soldiers um and these were collected right after the war and it led me to learning about um the origin of the museum itself it used to be called the army medical museum and it was started during the civil war um when american medical education was was kind of a scattershot thing and the army sort of took the reins and decided that um because you know there were so many specimens being created by the war specimens of disease and amputation and wounds um that field surgeons were required to send anything of interest to preserve them and send them back to to Washington to create this collection so that study could be made and and medical uh education could advance and so one doctor who was um the chief surgeon at the Harewood Hospital here in Washington DC his name was Reed Bontaku after the war he was very interested in gunshot wounds to the head and he went down to the battle of the wilderness uh battlefield and uh Petersburg and collected um crania human skulls that were simply lying on the ground um with gunshot wounds to the head so sometimes bullet holes right in the middle of the forehead or you know half the head is skull is missing sometimes the the bullets that caused the wounds were still with them and he collected these and uh actually took them back to his his laboratory in New York after the war but then later donated them to the museum and that's what I found there that's what they showed me and so that's what I started to draw and that intimate experience I I mentioned before was ratcheted up a hundredfold a thousandfold I it's I can't even put it into words what it's like to come into the museum where they have a place set up for me to draw and to be sitting literally face to face with an unknown an unknown soldier um they're they're not known and um i draw them in great detail um to really get to know them uh get to and and try to be able to convey as best i can the experience of seeing these and being with them to to a viewer who might see them um and so i was in the process of drawing these and i think i'd gotten up to about a dozen that i had drawn when the pandemic uh came and and so that has closed uh put that put that on pause for right now but i'm very much hoping that um uh once things are able to open up again that i think they would make a, a very 
interesting and powerful um, exhibit because it, you do literally come face to face with what, you know, the, this is what actually happens when we fight one another. This is, this is it. These, this is what happens. <laughs> and to see it and to see, you know, what, what the weapons of the time did and knowing what weapons today do, it, it, uh, it really makes you stop and think. Yeah. Yeah, I look forward to that, too. We're going to have links to where you can find information out about Paul Glenshaw and his creative work. But one thing that I definitely want to bring up, and certainly it's a very upbeat piece, and, and that is your work uh, on, on Duke Ellington and his music and, and the collaborative efforts that, that, you've, that you've really generated in bringing these quarantine musicians together around Duke Ellington and kind of an unusual... Uh, setting perhaps for a for a for a biographical piece on the Duke, but tell us a little bit about it because this is this too is very creative. It's gotten quite a bit of attention. Uh, I I first read about it uh, at the Washington Post, but uh, it's really uh, I think just brilliant. So so give us give us a sense as to all that's involved because this is really quite a uh, quite a quite an effort. Yes, and thank you for the opportunity to talk about it because what I just told you about these these civil war uh, soldiers is, is, is that's very, that's a lot to deal mm-hmm. with. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I'd actually just finished in January with my filmmaking partner, uh, uh, a film about world war one, which we'd spent four years mm-hmm. on. And that's also a very, very difficult topic mm-hmm. to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we decided, you know, wow, next thing is just gotta be joy. <laughs> it's gotta be joy. <laughs> that's what we're doing. We're doing joy. <laughs> <laughs> and we just what so what's what's a subject and we kept as we were brainstorming we kept coming around to Duke Ellington because we both love Ellington and listened to him our whole lives and read a lot about him and just because the breadth and depth of his work is just so extraordinary and and you know he represents you know he really embodied um, so much of the promise of what this country can be all about and especially now given the awareness to the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, you know, Ellington recognized and expressed and, and, and developed and, uh, you know, the, the fact that uh, black American music is at the core of our music, at the core of our culture. And it's something that you just have to deal with and dive in. And it's, and it's an incredible experience. And so we just were in the brainstorming phase of what can we do about Ellington and, you know, such an incredible character. And should we do a regular biographical thing or should we do something different? And then everything shut down. And that's where we were. So the idea popped into my head that it would be, we, one of the things that Ellington said is that every problem is an opportunity. And so what's the opportunity? What do we, and, and to work with what you've got, he said, even if you only have seven tones, if a musician could only play seven good tones, work with those. So here we are now. Everything's shut down. There's no gigs for the musicians. Film production's stopped. But if you've got a phone, you've got a camera, you've got a microphone, you can film, you can record. So what can we do with what we have at hand? And that's where the idea for the Seven Tones project came from. And um, I'm very pleased to report it has been incredible. We started reaching out just to musicians and filmmakers who we knew personally, and they jumped on it, started recording themselves, making beautiful recordings and incredibly creative. And then we put the recordings in a pool and then filmmakers come and select from the pool something that sounds good to them, something that they, they like. 
and then they make a film based on that recording. And so we started uh, at the beginning of April, I want to say. And now we've just, just yesterday, we put up the 25th film completed. And we have had over 70 recordings submitted. And it started with mostly musicians and filmmakers here in the D.C. area. But my partner, Derek, is out in California. He was recruiting people. And now we're getting folks from all over the place uh, wanting to be involved and, and contributing incredibly creative and really beautiful films. And I think um, it really points to um, a lot of things. We see it as an education project to not only educate people about Ellington and the breadth and depth of his music, but also, and how it reflects the American character at its very best, um, how it can, we can all, through Ellington's music, embrace what, you know, the promise of this country. Um, and, but it also shows what we can do with, you know, zero budget. <laughs> Nobody, it's been a completely volunteer uh, operation. And the films that have come out, we've had things that I never would have expected. Um, a beautiful recording of his, uh, uh, a ballad called Daydream, but set to stunning underwater footage. Uh, and um, a romance, a whole romantic film based on a magnolia petal in a gutter in Pasadena. You know, these moments of poetry and um, solitude and comedy and just the wonder of nature. And but then also, you know, getting us right up to the present. Uh, we just had a film from an incredible uh, uh, singer here in Washington, Robert E. Person and his filmmaking partner, uh, uh, Wendell Jordan, did his Ellington's um beautiful uh, hymn, Come Sunday. And they, were, they filmed both the Ellington murals and memorials in D.C. as a sort of celebratory thing, but then they wove that into the protests and demonstrations. And it sort of, it takes us, it puts us right in the now, but it takes us to this very great heritage. It's uplifting and realistic, and it's a lot. It's, it's layered and in a very, very compelling way. So the range of things that we're getting, uh, and I should say that the filmmakers have complete creative freedom. They can do whatever they want. The only rule is they have to be able to show it to either their grandparents or their kids. <laughs> it has to be appropriate for all ages. And uh, the musicians can do anything they want, but it has to be an Ellington tune or tuned by Billy Strayhorn, Ellington's writing partner. So um, that has been... Um, an incredible experience to work on and to, I've contributed a few films to it myself. Um, and, uh, so it's been really fun to, a fun creative problem. And it really just started as just a creative outlet while we were all locked down. But now we really see it as kind of proof positive of what happens when people work with each other just on the merits. A lot of times the collaborators on this project, all they know about each other is the name and the email address. Everything's being done remotely. So they come with no preconceived notions of who the other collaborators may or may not be. All they know is the work, and they just deal with the work. And what happens is these beautiful, uh, incredibly creative uh, collaborations. So it's something I'm, I'm really humbled by to be part of, just because what's, what's coming out are things I never would have thought of. I, you know, and so it's very exciting. Every time a new film comes in, I'm, I can't wait to push play and see what it is. 
we're going to put links up to where you can find this uh, collaborative platform that, that Paul's referring to about Duke Ellington. It'll be uh, available on YouTube and Facebook and I'm sure other places too, Paul. But what a what a powerful effort and and so timely as you as you say i i uh really uh, my hat's off to you in, in, for doing this work and and bringing us together in some very unique creative ways along with all that you're doing around the wright brothers all that you're doing around your own uh artistic work at the national museum of health and medicine as well as the ripley center gosh it's it's always such a pleasure to talk to you but uh, paul glenshaw thank you so much for your time I just have a feeling you and I are going to be talking again, and and I'll tell you this right up front. I look forward to it, Paul. I do, too. Paul, thank you so much for the opportunity. If I could, just one little thing uh, Mm -hmm. to tell your viewers that the project, uh, the Ellington Project, is an open project. So it is open to student filmmakers, student musicians, professional uh, musicians and filmmakers. It is ongoing. Uh, they just need to email me at seventonesproject at gmail.com, and that's the word seven. Uh, seven tones project at gmail and uh, i'd be happy to hear from them we'll put links there as well but thank you that sounds like a fun kind of almost a family project you know as paul suggests a phone you know a microphone comes with that phone you can do so much today and uh and paul's offering a platform to do that and with this music it's inspiring yes it's it's a and you know what we can actually have fun even now we can actually mm-hmm. have fun. Well, Paul Glenshaw, thank you again. Looking forward to uh, your upcoming presentation Saturday, June 27th, but all of your other work, too. This is just great stuff. You're, you're a very talented man, so we appreciate the time, sir. Paul, thank you so much for the opportunity to share it with you. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. You are welcome, Paul Glenshaw. Paul Glenshaw is an historian and a filmmaker. Links and ticket details for Paul Glenshaw's Smithsonian Associates presentation and tour via Zoom will be available at the notoldbetter.com website and the Smithsonian Associates website, all of which we will link to. Thank you to the Smithsonian team for arranging today's interview, and thanks so much for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Please practice smart social distancing. Be well, be healthy, and talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody. 